you filed a sentencing recommendation hours after President Trump tweeted his dissatisfaction with the Stone recommendation, and you changed that recommendation. No, I directed the night before, Trump the night before, that is well, Monday I, night. I know your story, but I'm asking. Well, you. I'm telling my story. That's well, what I'm here to do. To well, story. I do. I That's why I'm here. Well, I'm here to tell my story. Well, and on the night before, the night before on February 10th, well, sir, on February I, 10th, I directed. Reclaiming my time, sir. That was just one of the many testy exchanges this week when Attorney General William Barr showed up for his long-awaited appearance before the House Judiciary Committee. It was a moment House Democrats hoped would expose what they view as Barr's corruption and lies in defense of President Trump. Instead, it was more a political food fight in which Democrats and Republicans gave speeches and hurled insults at each other, failing to elicit any new meaningful testimony or pinning Barr down on any key points. Reclaiming my time was the Democrats' mantra time and again when Barr sought to interject with actual answers. We'll discuss Barr's testimony and how it fits into the larger Democratic case against Trump with Norm Eisen, a former special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee and the author of a new book giving the first fly-on-the-wall account of Trump's impeachment on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I am, I've been around so long, I still remember when congressional hearings were about actually producing new information for the public, from trying to hold people accountable, asking questions that elicited actual answers, or providing, you know, new documents or confronting witnesses with issues that they didn't want to discuss. But instead, you know, you watch that thing with Barr and it was it was maddening because the Democrats, I didn't see, you know, got anything that we didn't already know at a bar. And when they didn't let him finish answering a question and kept this, you know, reclaiming my time, reclaiming my time so they can give their speeches, I think it undercut the purpose of the entire exercise. Well, not to get too high-minded about these things, which I I know you don't like to do on skullduggery, but it strikes me that this hearing reflects so much that is wrong with our politics today. Right. Instead of trying to solicit new information to move the ball forward, to actually do their jobs as, as legislators, it's about getting that moment, that sound bite that's going to make them get them on MSNBC or, or the just get them on Twitter. On Fox, Fox's or, them, or right. Or just get or them on, on Twitter or on Twitter. And so it's just it a lot of heat and not not a lot of light. And it is a shame. I mean, how long have we been waiting for Barr to testify 
before the Judiciary Committee, where Democrats are in control, where, where they would have the opportunity to ask some probing questions. And, you know, they just botched it. So I don't I don't know. The, you know, the other thing about it is the Democrats and Bill Barr have <laughs> met their match and much more. And he's just so much smarter and effective, I think, than the typical and tougher, I guess, than the typical Trump administration apparatchik. You know, he comes up there. He has been around for a long time. He is supremely confident. He didn't look great, but um, he certainly didn't look like he was intimidated in any way at all. Uh, which he didn't is what wilt. Demo- uh, he, he, yeah, he yeah. doesn't wilt. He, yeah. he doesn't yeah. wilt. Yeah. Now, there, there were there were a couple of uh, uh, missteps, I thought, when Salini, uh, uh, the guy from Rhode Island, was uh, uh, grilling him about foreign assistance for a American presidential campaign and was asking him, is it ever appropriate to accept foreign assistance uh, for a campaign? And Barr's initial response was, well, what kind of assistance, you know? And then, and then well, I think he realized yeah, no. that was a misstep. Under yeah, the question. law, it's illegal for any anything of value to be provided by a foreign government or foreign entity yeah. to a, a American political campaign. There's always the question as to whether it, that was a misstep or if he in the moment understood that he had a, an opportunity to to um, kind of suck up to his boss because after all <laughs> yeah. uh, Trump Trump yeah. was Trump has been asked that very question and he said essentially the same thing it it depends i mean sometimes it might be appropriate to accept you know yeah. uh, help depends from on a, what from they got government. And yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, is, right? exactly. but know? i got to say the, the other thing yeah. watching the hearing that kind of occurred to me and it, it made it sort of was a little bit of an epiphany it made me think about Barr's conduct, which has been surprising to us throughout his entire tenure as um, AG the second time, is he has become almost like a folk hero to Republicans up there because he does so well and so much better what they you know want to do in standing up to the you know the Democrats, you know, owning the libs, as the kids say. And it kind of made me wonder. If um, now I think he's he's either seventy or he's I think he's seventy he's or 70, yeah. seventy. He's seventy, yeah. But it did kind of make me wonder: Is Bill Barr thinking about like a uh, a run for office in Virginia? Maybe maybe in the second Biden term, running for the sen- <laughs> running for the senator or something? Because you know he th- he did flirt with public you know running for public office uh, uh, once before quite a while back. And, uh, it, you know, look, it might be the last thing he'd, he'd want to do because he doesn't suffer fools and he probably wouldn't want to spend a lot of time uh, glad handing uh, with voters and kissing babies. But, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's something worth uh, thinking yeah, about. I, I don't know. You know, the, the my instinct is that if things go as we are fully expecting them to go based on the polls and Trump is, you know, trounced in November by Biden, I think the his entire tenure in office and administration uh, will be so tainted and have such a cloud over it that somebody who was so key uh, to helping President Trump as Bill Barr is not going to have yeah, any, and of course, uh, easy Virgi- sailing in a political race. Um, and Virgi- Virginia has pretty much become a blue state 
Um, yeah. So uh, that's where he lives. But we, he, there is uh, one uh, noteworthy news that we learned in the aftermath of that hearing that one of the Republican members on the Judiciary Committee who was questioning Barr yesterday, Louis Gohmert of Texas, has uh, revealed that he has tested positive for COVID. And I believe he was photographed with Barr. Was that photograph from the hearing yesterday or he was? Yeah, I think in, it was from in, the hearing yesterday. Yeah, they were, yeah. so they, they were pretty, they were talking, they were pretty close to each other. Neither of them was wearing a mask. There were some reports that uh, Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the committee who we're going to be talking about on this podcast in a moment, chastised Gomert for not wearing a mask. He did. I don't think he chastised Gomert at uh, this particular time. He did chastise other Republicans on the committee who were in vi- violation of committee rules, not yeah, Jordan, wearing a Jim mask. Jordan. But Jim right, Jordan, yeah. yeah. But, you know, Gomert has ostentatiously <laughs> said that he, you know, he wasn't going to wear a mask, that he gets tested every day. There's no need for him to... To, uh, to wear a mask. And that's what happened. He got tested at the White House, one of these kind of quick tests. He tested positive. And, you know, sometimes those those uh, tests could be false positives. So he did the formal test where they put the swab all the way up your nasal passage and it came back positive. In uh, Gomert's words, he has the Wuhan virus. And uh, now he's going to do everything he can to make sure that he doesn't pass it on to someone else. So presumably he will be wearing a mask from now on, although I have not seen him with the mask on. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, frankly, I'm more concerned at this point about Juan Soto's positive test for COVID and Soto being the um, uh, star young player for the Washington Nationals who can really use him back as they've gotten off to a somewhat uh, dismal start. But we are not a sports show. We are a high-minded public policy show, so we should <laughs> stick to that and uh, get to our um, great guest, somebody who's been on Skullduggery before and always has something to say. So uh, let's get to it. We now have with us Norm Eisen the former ethics counsel to President Barack Obama, the former ambassador to the Czech Republic, the former special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee and the author of the new book, A Case for the American People, the United States versus Donald J. Trump. Norm, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael. Hi, Danny. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Nice to be back with you. A lot to talk about in your juicy new book, but I want to start out with William Barr's testimony yesterday before the House Judiciary Committee, the committee you previously worked for. I assume you watched it. What did you make of Barr's performance? It was shameful. The three of us have been friends for a very long time since Clinton days, at least since the days of the Clinton scandals and impeachment. And in all that period in which we've been not so gracefully aging, we haven't seen an attorney general sit there and lie like that. You have to go back to John Mitchell days, as I wrote in a piece, a scene setter for The Post before the hearing, to find someone like that. But I was not surprised because one of the things that I do in my book, A Case for the American People, is lay out the pattern of Barr's lies. 
And wherever there's a Trump scandal, there's a bar lie to help cover it up from Russia to Ukraine to COVID to Lafayette Park. So I wasn't surprised, but I was disgusted. So, Norm, you have, over the course of your long career in Washington, seen a lot of witnesses go up there and, you know, where one party or the other is getting, you know, ready to tear that witness to shreds. You say he lies and he's shameful, but I guess my question to you is if you step back and if you are objective as you can be, um, (laughs) is he, was he for the Trump administration, an effective witness? Because it seems to me that that's the one thing Barr's got going for him. He kind of gives the Democrats a hard time. He's actually pretty good at at doing what he does. Yeah, Danny, I, I write about this in the book. His greatest act of lying ledger domain was the way he pulled the wool over everyone's eyes on the Mueller report. Because you'll recall there was a long interregnum between his releasing his letter describing, summarizing what was in there and the report actually coming out. In the book, I explain that the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, had X-ray vision and he saw through that. He says he's lying. And myself, my co-counsel, Barry Burke, our other colleagues tried to convince the press Barr is lying, and I describe how futile. The press is one of the heroes of the book. You and your colleagues in the fourth state have held Barr accountable, but that was not uh, one of your greatest moments as reporter after reporter says, I'm sorry, I got a report. If I say it's a lie. So yes, he's been effective, not just with Congress. That was his greatest effectiveness, and I describe the whole pattern I do not think that yesterday was a high point because um, the members were pretty good, even with the limitations of the five-minute rounds, where each member gets five minutes and then it switches to the other party. They were able to hammer away and score points. And even though it wasn't pretty, I thought they managed to rip several masks off. And there was one that even I wasn't expecting that they exposed. So, you know, so I thought I thought it was (laughs) what was it that you weren't expecting? I knew you would ask that. One of the nice things about working with the two of you is uh, you are not shy with follow up questions. That is a place where when I when Barry and I <laughs> it's worked kind of with an the obvious of, one, isn't it? I know it was a setup. But when Barry and I worked with when Barry and I were brought on to work with the members to turn them all into to work with them, they have great gifts. But to their credit, from the chairman on down, they wanted us, I write in the book, they wanted us to help them elevate their game. That is one of the great skills. Uh, listen to what your witness is saying and follow up. And you saw that yesterday, starting with the chairman, even though the five minutes make it tough. Here's my biggest surprise. I did not expect that he would be exposed as, I gotta say it, as a racist. He was disproportionately, you saw, he took disproportionate umbrage. And I was getting notes from inside the room when he was dealing with members who were people of color and to some extent women. He took a different approach and people saw that. I did a real-time tweet about it. 
that got, uh, last I looked, over 30,000 likes and retweet tweets with most people saying, yes, I, I saw it too. I'm so glad you said something. And I went on TV and I said it because you could see it. It was palpable. You could feel it. They ripped off a bunch of masks from his lies, but also those masks of racism uh, and misogyny. So I was surprised that he was not skilled enough to maintain an even tone. Norm, if you are going to level that charge against uh, against you know the attorney general that he's a racist, just uh, elaborate on that a little bit. What you're saying is that he was particularly angry in response to questions from people of color and from women because he also was criticized for saying that he doesn't believe that there is structural racism in American police departments. And he pointed out that, you know, the same more in this past year, more white people have been killed by police than black people, although conveniently left out the fact that in proportion to the numbers of those two groups. um, There it is. (laughs) Right. There's the content. Okay, there's the content. But in terms of the style, because on a per capita basis, the number of black deaths is many, many, and not to mention the other violations that don't result in fatality, is many, many times that that affects white people. So, but the, he had the, the style to go with the substance. And I just urge you and, and your listeners to look again at how he treated a Pramila Jayapal, a woman of color, a Joe Nagus, a male member of color, and the other uh, members on the dais. He was more contemptuous, ruder, and, you know, it really, the committee performed a public service. And the terrifying thing about it is that it's not just that he was rude in a congressional hearing. I mean, I write in the book about some of the shenanigans we saw over the course of the year from witnesses and members alike. They were astonishing. But it's that he's the man in charge of enforcing our civil rights laws and the rest of our laws. I've never seen anything like that from an attorney general. Again, you really have to go back to the days of Mitchell to see anyone who compares to Barr. Well, to be fair, because we are always fair on skullduggery, he did start out with a tribute to John Lewis. And um, he also, there were plenty of contentious exchanges with um, white members of the committee as well, white men on the committee. So I, I take your point. But I the takeaway that a lot of other of us had about this hearing is that it was a political food fight, as judiciary committees have tended to be, in which each side made their speeches, showed very little interest in actually eliciting any information from the attorney general. Time and time again, he asked to, for time to respond to what the members were saying, and they kept saying, no, no, reclaiming my time, cutting him off. And I want to read you something that uh, Rick Tyler, who's an MSNBC analyst, a former Republican consultant, but pretty much a never-Trumper right now, wrote on Twitter this morning, I'm not a fan of A.G. Barr, but let me just get this off my chest. We can't make a mockery of committee hearings which were designed to get useful information from those called to testify, not as a platform to score cheap political points for the camera. Yes, on both sides. Let witnesses answer questions asked. Televised committee hearing is now nothing more than a political event when they are supposed to be a necessary function of good government. Governance. Do you agree he has a point? You know, I do, I do not agree. And I would direct 
and I'll explain why. There's a piece of it, I guess, that I, so I, I will offer a friendly amendment. Let me put it that way. The, very much the story in the book, and the two of you are connoisseurs of what goes on in these hearings behind the scenes. We've all been studying them. I shudder to think between the three of us, we have a century of experience. And I don't only prosecute them, of course, <laughs> I've, I've defended witnesses. That's what my firm and I were doing in the uh, Clinton wars all those years ago. And since I haven't, and as a watchdog, as the founder of Crew co-founder of Crew, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. I've pushed cases through. And now in the book, I describe my year prosecuting the case against Trump. The problem that he's pointing to is a structural problem of how these hearings are structured. We overcame that in the impeachment by passing and invoking a rule that allowed me, my co-counsel, Barry, House Intel Council. It required a bill on the House of the floor, but to allow counsel questioning at these hearings to launch the hearings with a sustained ability to do what you describe. If the members were to allow him to filibuster, they ask him a question, he, Barr will filibuster and fill the entire five minutes and he'll fill it with his lies. Just look, I jotted a few, just look when they tried to confront him. Chairman Nadler tried to do that on his Kansas City lie. Barr lied and said there had been 200 arrests as a result of Trump's crackdown on peaceful protesters. Operation Legend. Both of you know, I'll ask you two a question for a change. How many arrests were there actually, guys? There was one, according one. to the testimony and yesterday. And do you know but, what but happened had... when Nadler tried? Do you know what happened? Let me finish. Do you know what happened? As you can <laughs> no, see, reclaiming I'm, I'm my time. Bill Barr. Do you know what happened? <laughs> I'm reclaiming my tried? time. Point of order. Point of <laughs> order. <laughs> Do you know what Go happened ahead. when Nadler tried when Nadler tried to corner him? Barr started hemming and hawing, says, I, I don't uh, remember. Nadler tried to ask follow-up questions. So the members were trying to make the best of their five minutes. The solution to this change the House rules, let the members do what I think they did very well in this hearing, hone in on particular questions, let counsel, professional questioner, it's all I do for a living, I'm even questioning the hosts of Skullduggery on their podcast when I should be being nicer to you to sell books, let the professional questioners set it up, change the House rules, hire people who are good questioners, and let them set it up. And then the members follow up with the laser strikes of five minutes each. My book shows, it proves that that can work to shed light, not just heat on these hearings. So I, I want to use Barr actually to pivot to your book and a theme that comes up over and over again, which is your kind of high, I dare say unrealistic, it turned out, expectations about a lot of the main characters and, <laughs> and, and disappointment at how they uh, turned out. Barr being one of them, who you said you thought was an institutionalist. I mean, we've talked a lot about that on this podcast, having both covered Barr back in the uh, first Bush administration. But it starts with Donald Trump, 
who you actually volunteered to help his transition. You, I mean, irony of irony, you actually wrote an ethics memo for the incoming Trump administration. And then it goes on from there. Wait, it wait, is- I, I have an addendum to that question because I want, <laughs> that was, was going to be my first question, the line that leapt out of me in your introduction in which you talk about, I have dined with the president. Now, well, we I want to hear that about that. But Yeah, yeah, right. we'll, 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 so, you, you, yeah you can start I'll with do- that. Both. I'll do uh, both. Okay. But uh, so, but so I just want to go through the litany here quickly because it's Trump, it's Barr, it's Mueller, it's Rod Rosenstein, all of whom you say basically this is I think in reference to to Rod, one, quote one more victim who had been sucked into Trump's dark vortex. Uh, and you talk about the vacuum of moral darkness or whatever. But so talk about that. Explain that and why that kept coming up in your book. Well, Politico said that the book is like this town for impeachment. And I think that is an apt, I think that is an apt line because I, you know, and and look, it's our conversation today and our previous skullduggery appearances. uh, Some of the stories I've worked on with both of you are infused with that. This Washington is, and then I'll come to the dinner and the rest of the question, Washington is a very small town. It is a company town. And so I've been around the town for a long time now, and and in particular, kind of the scandal tranche, defending them, provoking them, prosecuting them, all different sides of the scandal alley in this little town. And so you get to know everybody. And that is the case uh, from Trump on down. And it it heightened that sense. For me, that the dark vortex that I saw was happening to people that I knew and I had known for a very long time and in many cases admired. You can find a video proof of my dinner with Trump because we were both guests of The Washington Post. I'm sure the two of you were there as well. And the infamous uh, Washington Correspondents' Dinner where Obama roasted Trump yeah. uh, and you can see me you can see me sitting in extremely close proximity like you see Trump's glaring Mussolini like facial expression and his jutting d- jaw and and I'm right next to it in the shot laughing my head off I think he was uh, Lally Weymouth's guest at the Washington Post, wasn't he, Yesikoff? He was. Yeah. Sounds right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was a Washington Post guest that uh, year as well. I think it was 20, I think it was 2012. 20, uh, 2012, 2012, yep. So you can see me on C-SPAN laughing. I will tell you that Trump was preternaturally, amazingly, you're the, you're the I, that's another crumb I dropped in there. And nobody has asked me about it until now. Trump was preternaturally affable until that moment. He, you know, at the time I was serving as the U.S. ambassador to Prague, he had been married to a Czech. His kids are half Czech. He made a joke when we were introduced. Uh, Oh, the Czechs. I'm, I'm half Czech. He says, oh, the Czechs. I know all about them. It was funny, right? It was an Ivanka joke. He was interested in a kind of street smart. You would never mistake him for Frank Fukuyama, but he was interested <laughs> in a kind of he was interested in a kind of street in a street smart way, a clever businessman's way. He listened, he asked questions, he wanted to know what was going on there, he wanted to know about the business climate. Very gregarious and affable. 
uh, you know, raised a funny eyebrow when I talked to him about my Obama background. I think he was still a birther at the time. But perfectly smart, pleasant. And that leads me to the next story, the story in the book. I did not vote for Donald Trump. I tried. Really? Uh, <laughs> I I'm tried shocked. to sound. <laughs> I, I'm sure I talked to you over, to both of you over that, the period of Trump's ascent. I tried to sound the alarm. I don't think the two of you are that popular in Clinton world, as I recall. Isakoff, I recall screaming at you off the record, off the telephone, when we were representing some of those Clinton witnesses at my firm to try to get you not to write that. Am I allowed to say shit on your podcast? You can not say anything on our podcast. Do you, have, do you have Yiddish listeners not to write that dreck oh. that you <laughs> pervade for Newsweek in yeah. those years? Clydeman, were you still at the Legal Times then, or were you already? Yeah, at not. Also? No, I was already. Well, I was. Uh, I was doing research for Isakoff. <laughs> yeah. All right. All yeah. right. Can we get to so, the? Uh, let's get uh, to wait the a news. Minute. In your I'm book. gonna. All right. Let oh. me answer the oh, question. Okay. I'm though. sorry. So go ahead. I had that. I yeah. had that affable. I'll be efficient. I had that affable Trump in mind, even though I didn't vote for him, and I thought he was alarming. I had that affable Trump in mind, and I write a lot about my engagements with Team Trump. And then he had his press. So, you know, as a patriotic American, I'm like, OK, I'll help, even though I didn't want him. Maybe expect the worst, hope for the best. Then he had his emoluments press conference. He says, I'm taking foreign money. All bets are off. And that's when I moved to the resistance. The last thing I'll say is that you only have two choices in the era of Trump. It's like unfortunate historical parallels that I sometimes write about wearing my histor historian's hat. Either you're uh, with him or you're against him. And I moved to against him. And you saw the, the Rosensteins of the world, the bars, their souls have been eaten alive by him. And the proximity to him will absolutely destroy your integrity. Your only choice is to do what my friend and colleague Fiona Hill did leave or what my State Department colleagues did move to a fighting opposition of Trump. Yeah. And of course, that's yeah. that's what I did. Every page of the book has those fun insider stories about all these people I've known for such a long time. All right. So let's get to the news in your book, which is that before the Ukraine scandal even was on your radar, you had drafted 10 articles of impeachment against Trump and you lay them out in the book. It's mostly at the start around the Mueller investigation. Collusion is your first one. Obstruction of justice, referring to the details in the Mueller report. Hush money, the payment to Stormy Daniels to cover up a sexual affair from 10 years previously. You go on, failure to protect the uh, Constitution, emoluments, abuse of power, usurpation of the appropriations, power for building the wall, even though building the wall was his signature campaign issue, and then even usurpation of the appropriations, power for tariffs. You wanted to impeach him about imposing tariffs? Isakoff. Yes. The Constitution is the Constitution. The yeah. president doesn't have the power to do these things. Now, I will say I'm not clever enough to come up with that Article 9. That, that was 
article. <laughs> Who threw these that the one result. in? <laughs> uh, these are the result of brainstorming between myself, Chairman Nadler, um, my co-counsel, Barry Burke, the other counsel on the committee. But here's the important point about Article 9. You left out, by the way, my favorite. Number 10 is uh, what he will do next. <laughs> right. uh, the next high well, crime. You could, you could have another 20 question. along those lines. No, but, uh, no, that answers your question. Because someone who will violate the Constitution in these less notable ways, and they're roughly ranked in order of scandalous outrage, someone who will violate the Constitution in in the small ways will violate them in the, in the big ways. And this was like the broken windows theory of constitutional law, for your readers who are familiar with broken windows doctrine, that you need to address, you need to create a constitutional environment of respect for the Constitution. And that is what Trump, so you could, if, if we had, that was the theory of the 10 articles. Look, I was thrilled that we got two articles through. All right. So, Norm, you know, there was this debate going on in the country, and some of it played out on our podcast. We talked about this a lot, about what the strategy, impeachment strategy, ought to be in terms of articles impeachment. Do you go broad or narrow? And, you know, you talk about the Constitution, but ultimately, as a cliche by now to say this, but impeachment is a political process. And you knew from the very beginning that you had your work cut out in terms of, you know, winning over enough of a majority of the American people so you could move senators and get the two thirds majority in the Senate. And so I guess the question is, the approach that you were arguing for was a kind of a kitchen sink approach or, you know, pick your metaphor, throw anything up against the wall and see what's what sticks. And so the problem with that is it opens yourselves up to this is the opposite of what you're saying, but I think it plausibly opens up yourself up to charges of being political because you're like, let's see what will work here as opposed to being really strategic and trying to achieve your objective. I hope your listeners see the torment that you put your guests through with these questions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to torment you, not our (laughs) listeners. (laughs) That is, I encourage people um, to take a look at the book. It is a good question. It is a hard question. I fully, while I pushed for the 10 articles, I believe in them. uh, I believed in them to the uh, marrow of my bones. One of the other surprises is the book in the book is the ways that I came around. Uh, you know, I was not always leaning that strongly into impeachment. I came around to it myself. But I felt that we reached a good compromise. If you're not within Congress, if you're not advocating, you can't, your starting point can't be, oh, please give me two impe- articles of impeachment, because then you'll only get one or none. And I thought Congress, Pelosi's leadership was brilliant. Nadler did a wonderful job. Schiff is a genius. The three of them are, you know, the 19th century, Henry Clay led the great triumvirate in the U.S. Congress in the pre-Civil War era. Those three, Pelosi, Nadler, Schiff, are the great triumvirate of impeachment. And I write behind the scenes many, many never reported details of how we got to two. I was thrilled to get to two, and I'll tell you why. Only the third impeachment trial in American history in the Senate, roughly once per century. 
The two articles that we got were infused with Trump's pattern. We have pattern and practice language in both articles, so we pick up a lot of the other bad stuff. And since I was uh, the principal drafter together with Matz, my colleague Joshua Matz, and Barry Burke of the final articles of impeachment, I was able to smuggle in traces of all 10 articles into our two articles. So I was thrilled in the end of the day, even though we started with a larger ask. The ask Wait, was so did you ambitious, get, did guys. You get, did you get tariffs into your two <laughs> articles? Uh, well, excellent question. <laughs> what tariffs, excellent question, Clydeman. What tariffs is, but I have an excellent answer. What tariffs is about is Trump using taxpayer dollars and lying about taxpayer dollars, you know, his lies about the China tariffs, lying about taxpayer dollars to serve his personal and political interests. He doesn't give a damn about the uh, health of the American taxpayer, who really pays these tariffs, what long-term it has, a, a, what long-term effect it has. He's looking for a re-election talking point. He'll sacrifice anything to that. So that's exactly the story of how he was playing with 290 million dollars of taxpayer money and American and Ukrainian lives with the Ukraine impeachment scandal. So yes, I got his propensity for playing with other people's money into those articles of impeachment. And since you mention it, I put all of his crimes going back to his 1973 lies about his racial, his opening salvo of abusing the law and covering it up. Those were our two articles. It goes back to his racial discrimination in 1973. The articles were infused with my study of this master high criminal. One of the things that leapt out at me in the book is your disappointment with Robert Mueller, somebody you had previously had great respect for, but you did not have great respect for what he finally gave you in that final report. In fact, at one point, I think you describe Mueller's punting on the obstruction issue as unconscionable. Uh, tell us why you were so disappointed in Robert Mueller. First of all, he's still a hero to me, and I still have the greatest respect for him. His lifelong, I've known him for a very long time. He's another one. We were talking before the show started about how uh, Dershowitz and Starr and so many other people who figured in this impeachment visited me when I was uh, ambassador in Prague. Mueller, Bob is another one who came to Prague. We worked together closely at the end of his FBI tenure on, I had an FBI office in my embassy for Central uh, that did work in Central and Eastern Europe. And we worked together closely on transnational crime issues. And we had some notable successes together on those matters. I admire him. I've known him for years. I admire him deeply. He failed because he brought a 19th century man mentality and 19th century ethics and honor to a 21st century problem. And he did not, you know, it's like uh, trying to put out a, uh, a burning building with a water pistol. His report just did not, was not fit for purpose. It did not address the crisis represented by a President Trump who um, is attacking all the fundaments of our rule of law and constitutional republic system. And Bob had it within his power. If he had only said, yes, I would have charged obstruction on these, I believe, five counts where he would have charged if it was anybody other than the president. But he says, oh, it wouldn't be fair to reach a conclusion. It wouldn't be fair. 
It was much more unfair not to. He hints at the need for impeachment. He should have been bold like Starr and said, this is, in my view, I recommend impeachment. He should have released the report or made a public statement. Immediately, he wrote a private letter to uh, uh, the attorney general when the attorney general distorted his findings. He said, oh, please release my summaries. But Barr's as bad as Trump in abusing the system. These are 21st century abusers. They know how to spin and manipulate. So Bob, he didn't challenge. I write in the book, one of the news breaks in the book is, uh, we interviewed Rick Gates, reported for the first time. He pinpointed critical missing information on the uh, Trump's conspiracy with Roger Stone regarding WikiLeaks, uh, their, their dirty quid pro quo that I believe is I have new evidence of. Bob didn't even confront Trump. He, he didn't put, he didn't force Trump to testify. He let Trump get away with lying and pretending he doesn't remember. I have proof in the book. Of course, he must remember those conversations with Stone. So that was those honorable decisions and leaving it to others to decide, leaving it to Congress, to after the presidency, letting Barr manipulate, completely neutered his investigation, as I explained, we never recovered from that. And that is a tragedy. Uh, Norm, one of the other delicious sort of through lines in your book is some of the tensions that were playing out behind the scenes, both between the Judiciary Committee and your colleagues on the Intelligence Committee, and also between the Judiciary Committee and, um, and the leadership. Uh, there were questions about whether Pelosi was going to appoint a select committee, for example, which would have taken things away from um, from judiciary. And then, of course, there were turf issues between judiciary and intel when impeachment finally happened. So talk about that a little bit, um, how that played out, what you learned from it. Well, um, the you know, the, the biggest surprise in the book for readers who studied this from afar is that the Pelosi-Nadler battle, which was much, much hyped in the press during the months really after the Mueller hearing uh, and running through, so the August-September period, running through Ukraine, and then a little bit into October as Intel took the lead on Ukraine, at least in, in my last answer about Bob's failures. We learned from those failures and we did not repeat them when Trump, of course, repeated his abuse and obstruction with another foreign government, not Russia, but Ukraine. In that interregnum, the book has a lot of evidence that the tension between Pelosi and Nadler was overblown. Certainly there was, to the extent there were some tensions in August and September, I read honestly about them behind the scenes, how it looked, what happened, the conversations with all the players. Nadler, Schiff, and Pelosi came together with great unity around uh, the Ukraine allegations. I, and we came together, you know, I have personal friendships. Sometimes there were exchanges of strong language, and that's in the book too. Some of those stories are funny. I won't give too much away for readers. But, you know, we came together with a spirit of great respect. And we had two, really, myself and Barry Burke, my co-impeachment counsel on judiciary. Functionally, there were two uh, impeachment counsels on Intel, Dan Goldman and Maher Batar both of whom I knew and liked before I ever came to the Hill. Same with Barry. So the four of us had pre-existing connections and, uh, you know, we overcame those bumps. 
So it's really a story, uh, but I do describe, <laughs> I do describe the bumps along the way. That's inevitable when you have, um, when you have committees with uh, overlapping and sometimes clashing jurisdiction, when you have strong personalities at the head of them. But part of the genius of the great triumvirate of Pelosi, Schiff, and Nadler, of whom Nadler is the least well-known publicly, you know, they bring incredible century plus of political skills. And I write in the book how amazed I was that Nadler, after pushing ferociously for impeachment, including for a large array of articles, how suddenly when we were moving on the Ukraine stuff, he was able to put his ego on the shelf, step back, send, I report some of these secret inside conversations where Nadler said to Pelosi shift the whole Congress, I'm stepping back, unity, unity, unity. And he embraced those articles while pushing for enhancements. So I tell all those stories for the sake of history, but also because they're really funny stories. There's a lot of laughter and dare I say, love that went into doing this. And I have a wonder, John Lewis told me after he came out for impeachment, impeach him, Norm, but do it with love. And there was a lot of love for, for each other, uh, for the Constitution and for our country. And, mm-hmm. and so I, t- I tell both sides of that. It's like any he was, family story. Yeah. John, John yeah. Lewis was asking you to do good trouble. Uh, <laughs> right. He would say uh, in, that in to me. His famous phrase, yeah. Yes, he would say that to me all the time. Isakoff, I'll say one more thing about John. He would say to me as I did this work, I would never miss an opportunity to say, John, you're my hero. We would have meetings or whatnot. And I would always take him aside afterwards and just cherish a moment with him because you've got to you've got to do that, as we all see now with your national icons when you're lucky enough to know them. And he would say back to me, he would crack me up every time. He'd say, no, Norm, you're my hero, which is so ridiculous that John Lewis would say that to the likes of me. I actually have a picture of him saying that and me cracking up on my uh, Twitter feed that I put up when he passed. Well, you can put it on your tombstone, (laughs) quoting John (laughs) Lewis. Um, But look, uh, Norm, you said before you were thrilled at the end of the day because you were able to get the pattern and practice language into those two articles of impeachment. But look, at the end of the day, you failed. You couldn't get a single Republican in the House to vote for the articles of impeachment. Trump was acquitted in the Senate. You only got one Republican senator to vote for acquittal. And I want to take you back to a quote you're very familiar with from Jerry Nadler during the Clinton impeachment. And this is what these are Nadler's words. There (laughs) There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment substantially supported by one of our major political parties and largely opposed by the other. Such an impeachment would lack legitimacy, would produce divisiveness and bitterness in our politics for years to come and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions. Was Nadler wrong when he said that? No. He was So right didn't you times. do exactly Wait, oh, what he said? Don't cut me off. Said. Wait. No, 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 no. no, no. no. I'm not going to oh. let you cut me off, Isakoff. Nadler was right for the times, but the world has changed. 
And there's a very important, also unreported conversation between me, Ken Starr, and Mitt Romney on the margins of the trial, where we, the three of us, debate whether those principles still, still ring true. It was the first hint I had that maybe we could pick Romney up for the first time in American history, also going to your question, Mike, for the first time in American history, a senator crossing the aisle to vote against a president of his own party to convict on, in an impeachment. So I urge people to look at that conversation in the book. And here's the other thing that I want to say two other things. I once made the mistake in, I think it was in the Clinton scandals, Isakoff wanted to talk to one of my clients, Clydeman. Who, who, who and, was that? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't remember who it was. And I said, yeah, okay. You know, Isakoff said, no, and I'll and blah, blah, blah. And you started asking him questions like that one. And uh, I remember that I, it's been so long, I can no remember who it was, but I remember how angry the client was when we got off the phone. How could you let me talk to that guy? <laughs> he was so mean to me. Um, but, you know, I, I have a little more experience with your wicked ways. The world has changed. And I'll say, and the other thing I wanted to say was, this was a bipartisan impeachment in the following sense. While we didn't have the massive public support, bipartisan support grew over the course of the impeachment. By the time we reached the Senate trial, our most fundamental ask, which was for witnesses, was supported by up to 75% of Americans. Yeah, but many, removal many never, voters. never, never was over 50%. It well, was never, it, it, no, it never, no, you it never went, had went, the support of the It went over 50, people. it went over 50. Yeah, slightly, and, occasionally, slightly. Went, yes, slightly, and then but it, it went and then over it 50. dipped down, and then it dipped it went down. Up I followed and down. the polls very closely. It went up and down over 50, right. but you had Romney crossing and you have a fundamentally changed environment. But here's the most fundamental. You had Justin Amash, a lifelong Republican and conservative who supported the articles in the House. But here's the most fundamental. And I will tell you, because of conversations you'll read about in the book, if it had been a secret ballot, you would have had many more in the House and the Senate. They were scared. And you can read about my conversations with the Republicans and my math in the book. Um, Here's the last thing that I wanna say though, to your the most fundamental part of your question, Mike. You say that we failed. I say the last chapter has not been written. That is why this book is called A Case for the American People. Think of the effort. It really describes, it's mostly focused on the impeachment, but it describes what happened after, what happened since, and what's coming next. And ultimately, the argument is gonna be made to the American people. And I view the Russia scandal as like waking up in the morning, you gotta set three alarms. The Russia scandal was the first alarm. The Ukraine scandal was the second alarm. Those roused people. So when COVID happened and Trump started doing the same thing, sacrificing the public interest, the national interest, American lives to his personal political interests, attacking whistleblowers, lying and obstructing, attacking inspector generals. It's the same objective and the same playbook, the third, that was the third alarm and people woke up. So whether or not we end the case and the book makes that argument in very great detail, you'll have to weigh and judge whether the argument persuades you or not. But I think the last chapter is yet to be written success or fail. Norm, I think the last chapter of your book is the most powerful part of your book in some ways. So and it's essentially a closing argument in 
in the prosecution of Donald Trump. And the jury is not the Senate because you failed there. It's the American people. Right. So I guess you didn't you, you make the case that that impeachment wasn't a failure. It was laying the foundation for this trial that is happening right now where the American people will decide. So just make that case quickly. And also, what are the consequences of if the if the American people fail to convict and remove Donald Trump this time? Well, the case that he's doing the same thing with COVID as he did with Russia and Ukraine is uh, uh, proven by uh, the witnesses like Pam Carlin, who was one of the impeachment witnesses I examined, expert witnesses. She said, imagine if Donald Trump said to a governor, can you do us a favor though? And then he did it. He's addressed the governor's over and over again. All I want them to do, very simple, I want them to be appreciate, to be appreciative. If they don't treat you right, I don't call. You know, it's a two-way street. They have to treat us well off also. So all the signs of the abuse and most fundamentally the inaction on the first count of abuse of power, which was our first count of impeachment, he's abused his power by intentionally not dealing with COVID, for that critical initial launch period, really running into from February into March, because he didn't want to screw up his reelection. He thought that that was what would help him, and he didn't care who died. And there's been a lot of proof that's come out since then. I have some in the book. And then the second part is the obstruction, where he tries to hide and cover it up. Everybody who has a test needs one. False. Obama is responsible for the bad tests. False. The United States is, is doing the best in the world. False. So the lies, the attacks on whistleblowers, the attacks on inspectors general, the refusal to let people testify in Congress, uh, but above all the lying. So there you have it, abuse and obstruction, but now people are dying. Um, so I think we set up that case. The reason it has so resonated and Trump's approval ratings have plummeted the, the way they have. First, our work on Ukraine. Before that, our work, I should say, first, our work on the Russia investigation in Congress. Then our work on the Ukraine scandal of him doing this same pattern. Now he's doing it. And people did pay a lot of attention to those two investigations. Now he's doing it on COVID and people get it and his approval has fallen into the toilet where it belongs. And uh, I believe that the, uh, the people will make the final judgment. They're not gonna forgive him. These deaths and the other damage are directly on Donald Trump. Not all, but he could have, we could have been Germany. We could have been South Korea. We could have been best in class like we were so often in previous decades under previous presidents. Um, I was in the White House. I saw how we handled H1N1 in, uh, in the beginning of the Obama administration. Rahm Emanuel handed me a bottle of hand sanitizer and said, before you come in my office, I want you to sanitize your hands. Every meeting I had with Rahm Emanuel, when we finished the meeting, he would say, I'll do it. Fuck you, but I'll do it. Never come to my office again. And then three or four hours later, I would get a call, get in here. And one of those meetings, 
in one of those meetings, he gave me hands. So I saw how we did it in Obama. You know, I think the American people are going to deliver a very harsh judgment in the ultimate verdict uh, in the people's impeachment of Donald J. Trump. And I wrote this book as an argument to that judge and jury, all of us in November. Well, um, some of us won't be terribly surprised if you have occasion to be back in the White House uh, <laughs> in, in a next uh, administration. But uh, Norm Eisen, I want to thank you. I think you'll go down as the sort of happy warrior of impeachment. The book is A Case for the American People, uh, the United States versus Donald Trump. Norm, thanks again for being on Skullduggery. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Danny. It's so great being back with the two of you. Thank you so much. Thanks to former U.S. ambassador and author Norm Eisen for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.